This episode is sponsored by DevESG. DevESG helps organizations create, capture, certify, and convert ESG assets into real value to solve your plastic, methane, carbon, and energy problems. For more information, visit www.devesg.com forward slash greenbiz. That's www.devesg.com forward slash greenbiz. From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, Microsoft raises its voice on climate priorities, how carbon crediting is improving, the NAACP on investing with racial diversity in mind, and the shadowy side of recycling used solar panels. We've got a sunny disposition this week on 350. It's September 30th, 2022. Another month comes to a close. Welcome to another edition of Green Biz 350. So glad to have you with us. And joining me from her perch in Midland Park, New Jersey, it's Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. Shana Tova. Ah, thank you. Jewish Happy New Year. Year. Thank you. Jewish New Year happened uh, in the middle of the High Holy Days now, but uh, Monday, uh, Sunday, Monday was the Jewish New Year. So, Shana Tova to you too, and to all of those out there who celebrate uh, this this holiday. Um, yeah. Yeah. How do you celebrate it? Uh, not particularly piously. Um, we do mm. a little uh, 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 apples and honey. It's just a tradition, dipping apples in honey and um, and a few other things that are more of a, of a personal nature, um, but mm. um, not big on the High Holy Day services. Um, mm. But um, yeah, it's, it, it's still... Uh, having done this as a kid, since being a kid, it's, it comes around every year and it still feels special. It also, you know, generally coincided with fall and the beginning of school and, and other things. And so it just, it still has a bit of a a visceral sense to me, even though I'm not necessarily doing what, uh, you know, some Jews do on that, but yeah, um, it's, it's another year, 5783, although I'm, (laughs) Good. I'm okay. I'm still writing 5782 in my checks. I got to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh-huh. yeah. Uh, uh, you uh, you survived Climate Week, huh? I survived Climate Week. It was a you know, I mean, I I survived it because I picked my battles. <laughs> I I um I put some things on my calendar and then I went to those and I resisted vigorously. <laughs> getting pulled into too many other things um, because it just gets so un, unwieldy and unmanageable if you if you try to do everything it's so. uh, it's hard to hard to pull those impulses because there are mm-hmm. uh, there's so many things going on yeah, and and, for sure. and and we in the journalism profession uh, everybody wants us to be at their event uh, mm-hmm. if, if not in fact moderate or speak or otherwise participate 
And, um, and, you know, and they're not all that, that interesting. And some of them are very interesting, but they conflict with other things that are equally or more interesting. So good on you for, uh, for having the discipline to, you know, pick and choose and, and focus. Or it could have just been, I was too exhausted. <laughs> well, there's that too. I mean, you know, yeah, it's not yeah. like uh, one of our events where it's all in the same conference center or hotel or convention center. Yeah. This is all over Manhattan. And I even saw yeah. some in, in Jersey and Brooklyn and, um, uh, it's just, it's a lot going on. And yeah. so, uh, but, uh, we had some great coverage on that this week and, uh, you know, let's get into, I know one of those stories coming up in the week in review. But before we get we get to your piece about Microsoft, Heather, let's talk about solar panels. Um, yeah. You know, as we've watched solar uh, just accelerate in the uptake of uh, you know, and it's, it's incredible growth, uh, growing by about thirty three percent each year on average for over the past decade, and, and really hitting tipping points now. The big question starts to become: What happens to them at the end of their useful life? And uh, Mike DeSocio, one of our contributors wrote a piece about that that's uh it's really interesting and you know it's far from settled uh but uh you know more and more of these panels will will reach uh that 25 or 30 year mark uh that would where they start to uh, either break in some cases or just become less efficient and need to be replaced or sometimes even the the house needs to come down you never know uh and and all of a sudden we have this issue of what do we do with all this glass and metal and precious metal and uh, and all of the various things that go into one of these panels, it's not so easy. Yeah, it isn't easy. And one of the reasons we publish a story is because every time we do publish a story about this topic, it is just very well read. I mean, it, it's, it's an issue that everyone needs to know about, like the solar developers, of course, but all of, also the, the folks that are procuring renewable energy. If you're buying into a solar farm, like it, it behooves you to understand what's going to happen to that technology at the end of its life. And um, not many developers have a a um, a plan for that. And the the challenge is that that you know, as with so many other things that we make, we make them very integrated. We we make we it's a design thing, right? So things are designed to be small and really closely knit together and not necessarily designed to be taken apart. So as with so many other items, um, the solar panels turn, turn out to be very difficult to handle. So there are some companies that are that are coming up around this and there's a lot of research and development going on, but very un, unsettled um, part of the market. I think uh, there are a couple of companies, like I think for solar, which is a panel maker, um, solar cycle that are offering end of life services there's there's starting to get be more of an interest but there's definitely not a tipping point at this at this time I, I don't understand why we haven't done for solar panels what we've done with car batteries and tires mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is to uh, assess a fee and, and actually we do that with with computers now too mm -hmm. there's a, a three or five dollar fee when you buy one that mm -hmm. goes contributes to creating infrastructure and uh uh, mm -hmm. For for handling and then and, and those fees, uh, and 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 the and the requirements that go with them that these things cannot be put into a landfill, um, uh, generally create markets even though they may take time and uh, but that's how these things happen. 
again with 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 car batteries i mean you you can't throw those in landfill and and if you go and replace one usually they usually take it out and charge you a fee for the next one uh beyond the purchase price so um, that just seems to me, and, 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 you know, there are some moves in that direction. And, and Mike writes about the, how California a couple of years ago reclassified solar panels as something called universal waste, which is the same category that goes to batteries and, and, and fluorescent light bulbs, uh, which have some hazardous uh, metals in them. Um, and so this, that opened the door for more waste handlers to accept solar panels, uh, but they obviously have to dispose of them in a certain in, in certain kinds of ways. So there's progress, but there's still a long way to go. I think also one of the things that you're seeing developers do, like Enel is, is an example that, that's named explicitly in this story, is um, focusing on maintenance, right? So like trying to keep these things in in the field longer. And actually, and I wouldn't be surprised to see this happen in the future. It happens with other things, but like ways of updating these technologies with through software potentially in the future. Um, You know, if you think about how you keep these things in the field. So I, I, there has been some focus on that. Um, But yeah, definitely an area where there's a lot more to be um, handled, but, but but where the economics are still very challenging. So We'll continue to focus on this uh, over time. Well, let's focus now on a story that you wrote uh, and came out of uh, Climate Week, an announcement that Brad Smith, the president and CEO of Microsoft, uh, uh, made around um, you know how their uh, this is this is this is part of their ongoing saga of, of becoming the first uh, I guess really carbon negative company. Um, and, uh, well, why don't you take it from here? Cause it's your story. <laughs> yeah. So there was a lot of, there were a lot of pieces to this particular briefing, which happened actually, I don't know. I don't know if you knew this, Joel, they have a, a an office right next to the UN, um, the second office in New York, um, explicitly focused on liaisons with, with the United Nations and on, on, on working through policy there. So, which is kind of interesting. Um, the U.S. ambassador to Microsoft or something. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, I mean, but so they, they spent a lot of time there. So they, they created a presence there. But there's a, a few things that work. They, they, they did provide a bit of an update on um, their their own house, right? So how they're doing with their carbon emissions and how far they are on their car- carbon negative um, journey, which which is to say they have they had some hiccups and they've acknowledged those um, that their scope, their scope one and two. Um, reduced was reduced by 17% in the last reporting year, but their scope three um, rose, uh, I think something like 23%, like along with the revenue. So their revenue went up and their their scope three emissions went up. Scope three emissions are the ones that occur in yeah. a company's supply chain as yeah. opposed to the fuel and, and electricity mm-hmm. that companies buy are scope one and two. Mm-hmm. Sorry, go ahead. Mm-hmm. No, fair enough. Thank you for, for being my uh, translator. <laughs> Um, but you know, so, and they, they, this was just reported a while ago. So there was some, they did gave some brief updates on, on where they stand now, but the more substantive parts of the, um, announcements were, t- were them talking about how to use technology to, um, you know, digital technologies in particular to help other parts of the world transition to lower carbon energy. Um, and there was one specific example that kind of was uh, very intriguing. There's a, uh, they've collaborated with this nonprofit called Terra Praxis, which has um, is working on a way of helping coal plant operators 
figure out how to retrofit their facilities um, run specifically at this time on small modular nuclear. But the fact is that these these facilities have the grid infrastructure to run other things. So why not why not figure out ways of getting getting that asset to be to be performing? And so how you know how could a coal plant operator be convinced to to transition something? Well, if there was revenue coming from it. So that was kind of an interesting um, relationship that was announced. What what are your thoughts on that? I mean, nuclear is controversial, but of course, but you know. Well, I was going to ask, ask you about a different controversy because Microsoft has been under fire for mm-hmm. the uh, having developed products that are used heavily in in gas yeah. and oil exploration yeah. uh, and extraction and, and mm-hmm. all of that. Um, did that come up in this, and how how does that those two things sync up? It it didn't come up. The way I think it syncs up is they have all of these. I mean, and they've they've said this when when you ask when I have asked about that in in the past, they have said we can't cut these industries off because we need to help them transition. So this is an example of that, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, they're still working with these industries, and at what point they they switch over or you know that that remains to be seen so so what's um, really new here oh so it was really new um well so that's that's a new relationship that's a brand new relationship the thing that's that's kind of new well that that's very new on this one is that the idea is to help get the permits much more quickly to get the plans in place it, it takes a long time to figure this out so they figure by creating sort of uh, this this digital way of doing this that they can help these asset owners find revenue streams um, more quickly. What was probably the most striking part of this briefing for me, and probably for you as well, is how they talked about policy, right? So we have been very vocal on the podcast with talking about where regulatory moves should be um, coming and where how, and how companies should speak up about them, right? So what do you think about carbon policy? What do you think about energy policy? How are you showing up um, with your voice and your money um, in terms of lobbying for these? So they actually published two big briefs last week on carbon and electricity policy suggestions. Um, and they they really, you know, they've, they've been talking about this for a while, but now they've actually put this kind of on, on paper and said, this is what we're going to advocate for. Um, and they have lots of different things in, in each area. Um, you know, I, I guess I could highlight just a couple things. One is that uh, they they want better accounting and um, high quality standards with respect to, to carbon removal policies. No no surprise there. Um, consistent, robust, and interoperable GHG reporting metrics. Right. So they that's what they want out of disclosure. That's that's on the carbon side. On the electricity side, they're. Um, I think one of the interesting things there is they're going to advocate for solar, hydro, wind, nuclear, and green hydrogen. So you know they're they're looking at a, a much broader mix, I think, than you hear about from other companies. Um, and they're also talking about the global south more. Um, how uh, they're they need to have policy focused on those markets. I I think um, and that that actually was a theme at Climate Week last week. Um, people. That are who are preparing for COP are very concerned with some of the plans out of the global South for development of fossil fuels resources. You know these countries that have these rich resources and they're they're coming into their own and wanting to have their own economic and energy security. And they're talking about you know developing these resources like 
countries like Nigeria and, and, and so on that, that have these resources and are saying, why shouldn't we? So, um, you know, I think it's not just US, the US where these companies need to be talking. It's, it's in a lot of different other different places. Yeah, well, a developing story, as we like to say, and another developing story. It brings us to this uh, really fascinating piece that, that senior editor Jesse Klein uh, wrote this week called Four Ways Carbon Crediting is Improving. I was, I, I was at the stop a minute at the term carbon crediting. I hadn't seen that before, but I guess that's the way we talk about this uh, offsetting and, and what comes out of offsets, the credits that, that, that mm -hmm. yeah. get to use. So um, I, I'm down for that. I, I like that. But, <laughs> Um, yeah, but good, you know, good she, one, Jesse. She did a great job of 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 translating this very wonky, geeky stuff uh, around you know carbon. <laughs> you know, we talk, we only hear about oh, offsets. Offsets good. Offsets bad. Offsets are not accountable, or they're not additive. Things like that. But but there's a number of things that are going on behind the scenes, as she calls it. Uh, bit by bit, inch by inch, and tiny nuance by tiny nuance, uh, including uh, something called dynamic baselines that uh, that uh, help establish, you know, where what are we counting from? You know, where do we where do we look at, at, at the starting place to establish whether something is growing or shrinking or neutralized or whatever? Um, and satellite monitoring and uh, the whole digital uh, impact of the methodologies and project templates that simplify things. So I thought this was really, really interesting. I have to admit, I didn't understand all of it, but uh, but I think it's fascinating to see the kind of work that's going behind uh, going on behind the scenes, uh, largely unheralded, uh, generally unknown, I think, to those outside of a small group of uh, of insiders, but incredibly important. Mm -hmm. And I, I, what I appreciated about this is that there's so much noise around this market right now. We, I was just actually speaking with Jesse earlier today about this announcement that we both saw. We were trying to make, we couldn't make heads or tails out of it. We hadn't quite figured out how important it was. And there's just so much, um, and I, I can only imagine what corporate buyers are, are, are going through right now, trying to sort through what's real, what's not real, how, you know, how is this, is, is this quality, let alone should I even buy this thing? I, I think for me, one of the things that jumped out of this story was the um, importance of digitizing the information related to this, just getting back to verification, more information, how do we catalog everything that's going on? How do we tell the right stories around this and make sure that things are, are accurate? So the, the global satellite monitoring program that she mentions is very interesting to me. And the, the idea of um, putting these things on on various digital digital assets, you know, is really intriguing to me. Um, lot, lots, lots going on there. And, um, you know, it's going to shake out and, and there's going to be a lot of, I think, consolidation in this space, which, of course, makes it fun to cover. Yeah, and we'll be talking more about this at the Verge 22 Carbon program taking place uh, next month in four weeks, uh, October 25th to 27th in San Jose. The, the one thing that's not in here, and it's not of any fault of Jesse's because it was really out of the scope of this, but but it's really an important piece of this that I always think we have to emphasize and emphasize and emphasize is the role of offsets 
in a company's uh, uh, you know carbon uh, mm-hmm. uh, experience mm-hmm. or carbon I- impacts, I guess um, that it's not necessarily the first thing you do. It may be the third thing you do after uh, efficiencies and and renewable energy purchases, and then whatever is left, uh, you know, and, and maybe even some carbon you know capture or sequestration or nature-based solutions, uh, and then there's offsets, uh, which can be, you know, become part of the nature-based solutions. But but the first thing is we emit less carbon to begin with, and I just always think that's important because it often gets lost in all the interest and excitement mm-hmm. of, about, oh, we got to offset so we can become net zero. And uh, net zero without... Uh, without reducing carbon uh, emissions in the first place is, um, you know, as I describe, it's kind of like having a, uh, a diet Coke with your, with your double bacon cheeseburger and, and, and calling it a diet. Um, you've got to reduce calories first before you can offset it and it all with uh, your diet drink. Maybe that's not a perfect one, but um, maybe it's just because it's lunchtime. But um, that's my story of the day. Amen. Grant Harrison, Director for Sustainable Finance and ESG with Green Biz Group, and I, like so very many other humans, was in New York City last week for Climate Week, gathering under this year's tagline of getting it done. I put 37 events on my calendar, missed 32 of them, but managed to make a bunch of new sustainable finance friends, and of course got some quality time with familiar ones. And left with a feeling that yes, despite the requisite dose of healthy skepticism one must digest before attending the week's events, we can still get it done. One of the five convenings I did make it to was an afternoon of roundtables hosted by the Intentional Endowments Network, an NGO that supports universities and other mission-driven organizations in aligning their endowment investment practices with their mission, values, and sustainability goals. I joined 100 or so trustees, chief investment officers, endowment staff, asset managers, and more for some thought-provoking discussions. Among those was a conversation with the NAACP's president and CEO, Derek Johnson, where we discussed where finance and his organization's theory of change intersect. I first asked Johnson what traits he sees as comprising a firm's DEI program done well, and alternatively, one that is not. One thing that I've noticed that when, if the person who's over diversity and inclusion report directly to the, the president CEO, that sends a message throughout the, the whole organization that this should be taken seriously as a priority. Secondly, if that person actually have a property law sheet where they're actually a part of the business unit and driving profit, that also shows that not only is it a, a value statement, it is in the DNA of the company. And then thirdly, when the counterparts who are sitting around the C-suite tables also have measurable goals to meet in, as it relates to diversity and inclusion, that shows that uh, uh, from the entire institution is firmly behind it. They understand the value of moving the needle and also the opportunity of having a more diverse decision-making organization from the from the ground to the top. Johnson and I next dove into some of the market-based mechanisms the NAACP is pursuing, starting with the organization's own ETF called the NAACP Minority Empowerment ETF, 
traded with the ticker symbol NACP. We got into this space because we wanted a fund that zero in on inclusion for African-Americans. Uh, and that's what makes us unique. We also had to have our own internal self-check that we could not have a fund with fossil fuels in it. So we had to start and then restart because we made that mistake. Mm-hmm. And so part of any um, EFT fund is to be really clear about which communities you're trying to impact for the broader good and also uh, you know, learn from mistakes. This is a new venture for the NACP, so we didn't know what we didn't know, but we are able, we're agile enough to say, wait a minute, let's pause, let's recalibrate and relaunch. And that's what we did. I think any EFG that's seeking to do social good need to be willing to uh, be agile enough to pause and reset because all of the ETFs, if we do it right, it will have an impact on the greater society. And that is our goal. And next in the market-based mechanism thread, I asked Johnson what he thinks of the intersection of equity, ESG, and retirement funds. Well, if you look at the individuals who paid into faith of a, a, a municipal or state pension fund, it's, it's far more diverse than some of the investments those funds are making. And our push is uh, your investment should reflect uh, a community of health for the members who are paying into the fund. <clears throat> Not the members who paid in it 20, 30, 40 years ago, but the members who are paying in it now to keep it going moving forward. And if you do that, much will be reconsidered. Mm. You know, how we invest as it relates to climate will be reconsidered. How we invest when it relates to diversity, whether it's racialized diversity or gender diversity or whatever the issue is. Uh, Investors should really be looking at how to maximize return. Mm but also how to improve a higher quality of life for the individuals who are paying into the fund so the fund can actually exist. And in a venture capital culture where one can fail repeatedly, lose billions of others' money, and remain on a visionary pedestal while white, see one Adam Newman, my penultimate question to Johnson was for his thoughts on the need to bring equity to the world of VC. I think there's several changes. One to put more VC fund managers into the space because those that are in there have actually had some high, some of the highest returns, but they are hard pressed to raise funds to support their VC fund, right? Secondly, uh, they're closer to the ground to identify innovators who may otherwise be looked over or who simply don't even know this world exists. Um, and then thirdly, making sure that that as this industry continues to grow and all the wealth that's been, been created out of it, more people participate. So it's not concentrated in one or two people. The, the scariest thing in the world, and I'll use this as an example, is, is the Facebook Mark Zuckerberg example. One person controlling 60% of the shares of what's now have become a public utility. Mm. That's a dangerous prop- proposition for the American public at large. If you think about the most recent tensions that, uh, over the last several years, particularly under the last administration, where white supremacist behavior was open and notorious and people felt okay. And they they can meet on Facebook. They can use advertising on Facebook. They can create communities and radicalize people. And in some cases, those individuals go out and cause harm, like the, the Boogaloo boys who killed the federal official in the Bay Area or individuals who sought to uh, do a shooting in Louisville, Kentucky, but went to uh, Kroger because the door was locked and kill people in Kentucky or mm-hmm. go to Pittsburgh and, and, you know, do a mass murder at a synagogue or go down to El Paso and do the same thing in Walmart. If you think about 
the, the El Paso example, the Louisville, Kentucky example, and the Pittsburgh example, that happened in a week. And yeah. those individuals were, were they met on social media platform. They, they, they got recruited there. They got radicalized. And so if you go to the space where there's such massive amount of, of wealth being created, no accountability, one person owning 6% of the shares, there is no accountability. Mm. And we have to figure out a different model so people can do well, make money. That's great, but also do good and put up the guardrails so that people in different communities can feel okay about being their unique self. I always say your uniqueness is your genius. And we have such, such unique diversity in this country that should be celebrated, not otherwise. Mm -hmm. You've just heard from Derek Johnson, President and CEO of the NAACP. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350, and you'll learn more about the organization stories and events we've mentioned. While you're over there on the site, check out our seven free weekly newsletters. They're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to sign up. We welcome your comments, questions, and tips. Our address, 350 at greenbiz.com. And Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time. This episode is sponsored by DevESG. DevESG helps organizations create, capture, certify, and convert ESG assets into real value to solve your plastic, methane, carbon, and energy problems. For more information, visit www.devesg.com forward slash greenbiz. That's www.devesg.com forward slash greenbiz.